Hello and welcome to episode 76 of Can We Still Be Friends, a podcast that tests the limits of the friendship between two people who mistake movie taste for personal morality. I'm Nate Goss, here with Ryan Ebling. With the multitude of great documentaries available to moviegoers every year, it's hard to remember a time when feature documentaries were mostly lumped in with PBS nature series and educational films. It's easy to forget that Michael Moore was not always the polarizing household name that he is today. So we're going back to where it all began with 1989's Roger and Me, Moore's groundbreaking debut about the fall of Flint, Michigan at the hands of General Motors CEO Roger Smith. For a documentary in 1989, Roger and Me was a smash hit. It earned $7 million and won several awards in various film festivals. While Moore himself considered the film a failure as it did nothing to reverse the fortunes of Flint, Michigan and its residents, Roger and Me showed people the entertainment value of a documentary and asked questions about how necessary it is for a documentary to remain objective. Since Roger and Me, Moore has gone on to win an Oscar and break box office records with Bowling for Columbine and Fahrenheit 9-11, and has become a pretty major force in American political discourse, for better or worse. But does entertainment value make Roger and Me worthwhile? Or are we better off just trusting the truly unbiased judgment of major corporations and the media outlets they own? Keep listening. This is the CBS Evening News. Dan Rather reporting. Good evening. General Motors confirmed it today. It is going to close plants employing almost 30,000 workers. Today, we are announcing the closing of 11 of our older plants. While Detroit and Pontiac will certainly be hurt by the shutdowns, the effect on Flint is absolutely devastating. <laughs> devastating wasn't the half of it. I, I mean, maybe I got this wrong, but I thought companies lay off people when they've hit hard times. GM was the richest company in the world, and it was closing factories when it was making profits in the billions. Well, there you have um, basically the the main reason that Michael Moore is doing this documentary, the massive layoffs that happened in Flint, Michigan, and the uh, the impact that that had. Mm-hmm. As on, presented on uh, his town. by Dan Rather. Yeah. Uh, with assortments of other local newscasters from the time. Right. Moore pulls in a lot of voices mm-hmm. uh, in the, in this documentary. Um, but yeah, the, that's a fairly shocking number of people to lay off, especially when you consider that most of the people in that town are relying on those jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so It was a company town. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, Michael Moore then sets out to, uh, to find Roger Smith, the head of GM at the time. And... Uh, Really makes a movie out of his inability to interview someone. Yeah, which I think actually eventually became Michael Moore's style. Yes. It was sort of a, I'm going to try to do this thing that we already know is probably not going to happen, and I'm going to use that as a springboard to, you know, basically lay out my argument, Michael right. Moore's argument. Right, yeah. So, yeah, I, I was trying to think, before Michael Moore did documentaries have such clear thesis statements, such clear, like this is my point and I'm going to work to prove that, not really explore the issue right. from various viewpoints. Yeah. Well, I think we'll definitely get into what is Michael Moore's thing and what did it have to do with documentary film. Mm-hmm. I don't know that, I don't know what, I don't know what he was doing was entirely new. I think what was new was definitely injecting himself so much into it. Yeah. That was kind of new. I think the idea of also trying to mix in some satire with it yes. was kind of new. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of new things happening with Roger. Right. It's a very unique voice for the time, yeah. for sure. Um, but I guess the question of whether or not he's the first one to sort of lay out a single argument 
um, as like almost like a do- a political essay as mm-hmm. documentary. I think he was influenced by another. I don't know if you've ever seen the documentary The Atomic Cafe. I have not. That was a 1982 documentary that heavily influenced Michael Moore, and it is another one that is definitely making a point. But you, there is no. I've, I, it's been so long since I've seen it. I, I don't believe there's even any narration. Oh, um, just original it's, footage. It's just montage, and the way it's juxtaposed and edited together mm. definitely makes a point that you know some would say would border on uh, propaganda, but certainly one-sided argument um, for or against something. Interesting. Yeah, I'm looking at a list of documentaries from the 80s, and and if you were a documentary film fan at the time, yeah. there was some exciting stuff yeah. happening. Did you ever see one? Uh, well, I mean, you had the Maisels, right? Right. Which we did Grey Gardens and their whole thing. Right. But that was definitely more of the sort of like fly on the wall. Yeah. Um, the technical term being like the cinema verite mm-hmm. <laughs> idea of like, just basically, we're going to tell the truth by letting the camera capture what it captures. And yeah. there's this sort of this, it's whether, on, it's, whether it's the actuality or not, they're going to give you the front of objectivity. It's, you know? it's, it's documentary, but it's also more like found footage art film. Exactly. Yeah. Um, than what we kind of understand documentaries to be now. And certainly what is popular in documentary now with anything on Netflix, and Netflix then extends everything into a series. Um, <laughs> Uh, that's all usually to its detriment, by the way, I agree. I feel like the documentaries, I'm like, this would have been better as a feature length documentary. I agree. I actually, a relative of mine who writes film scores scored the family recently on Netflix, which I haven't seen Hmm. yet. And he, even though you like to name drop by the way, my, my relative. Yeah. Why not? Todd Griffin. Yeah. I mean, uh, he's a, he's a great, uh, film score composer. Um, and he was uh, part of the overnighters. Yep. Right, which was an he awesome, did, one of my favorite documentaries. He's done, so. yeah, he's done a ton of stuff, uh, especially now that Netflix is getting so heavily into the documentary game. He's got a lot of work. And he he said, the last time I talked to him, he was like, yeah, I mean, it's more work and more money for me, but they not all of these need to be mm. six-part yeah. series. Yeah, and I think what's so easy about making it a series is that the process of making a documentary is usually getting way more hours of footage right. than so you actually need. Yeah, and I, I suppose then it's Netflix way of ensuring that they're getting their money's worth. Like, sure, you are not going to Go only show. Yeah. You're only going to show, <laughs> uh, you know, fifteen percent of what we paid for you to shoot. <laughs> You're going to show it all. <laughs> um, but that is, I think, has its roots in in Roger and me. Even though there were great documentaries just a year before Roger and Me, The Thin Blue Line yeah. came out. Um, I think you and I both saw around the time that we did Wayne's World, The, the Decline of Western Civilization, yeah. yep. great. those three movies. Um, well, the, the two of them came out in the 80s and then one came out in the 90s. The Times yeah. of Harvey, Harvey Milk. Right. Uh, there was like a lot of new stuff happening. Sherman's March. Or Sherman Marches, I think. I was going to say, like, so you could take all of those and I feel like Moore takes pieces of every single one of those. Yeah. So with Errol Morris, the part that he kind of takes is looking at maybe, oh, you've heard it said this way, but let's think about it this way. Right. Whereas with Sherman's March, that one is definitely one where the documentarian is in the movie. Yeah. It's all about him. And I think Character. that's what Michael Moore takes from something like that. Um, and the decline of Western civilization. Now, I don't know. That's so close to what Michael Moore was doing time-wise that maybe, I don't well, know. The was, first one was 81 and the second one was oh, 88. Okay. But I feel like there's a little bit of, I'm going to show you sort of the more bizarre mm-hmm. human behavior of certain groups. I mean, you, you know? could even say Spinal Tap. Sure, yeah. <laughs> Influenced that. What Michael Moore was doing. Yeah. yeah. 
So as so often happens with the the turning point, it kind of took a bunch of things mm-hmm. that um, had been happening pot, yeah. and been working and then kind of put them together in a way that made it more palatable, possibly. Mm-hmm. Certainly entertaining. And made it way more entertaining. I mean, not to say not anything more against than than those. those. Right. And I, I can't imagine what it would be like for a film goer in 1989 to see this. Even if you had been kind of watching some documentaries, but I don't think that they were all that popular in the 80s. Most people hadn't really seen documentaries. And then you see this, and it would be just such a new experience. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it would be interesting to maybe talk about um, before we get too far into Roger and me and our own viewing experience, um, you know, first of all, what was uh, up until now our our relationship with Michael Moore, but also our relationship, maybe generally speaking, with documentary. Like mm-hmm. that is something. I feel like documentary is a type of film that a lot of people are into now, mm-hmm. but no one that I grew up in with, no one was watching documentary when I was in high school. Right. You know, it's something that we have all kind of come to recently. And I mean, recently within like the last 10 years or so, 10, 15 years or so. Yeah. To heavily watch and seek out documentary. Um, yeah, it's absolutely true for me too. I'm trying to think of when The Fog of War came out. Yeah, Fog of War came out when I was a senior in 2003. So Fog of War is Errol Morris's documentary of uh, uh, Robert McNamara, right. Secretary of War. Was it? No, Secretary of Defense. It's Secretary of Defense, uh, you know, in the lead up to and through a lot of Vietnam. Right. Um, um, won the Oscar, and I feel like that one kind of put documentaries yeah. back on the map, yep. along with Bowling for Columbine. Yep. It had a great soundtrack from Philip Glass. Right. It just had a lot of pieces to it that yeah. made it really watchable. Um, and so as I was watching a lot of independent movies, documentaries were in that, because I was paying attention to like festival stuff, and documentaries mm-hmm. would make that. Um, I really started getting into things like Errol Morris that sort of say, this is how you've heard heard it talked about, but look at it this way. Mm-hmm. Um, or even documentaries about, and this is again, a very Errol Morris idea with like fast, loose and out of control of taking things that you might not think were interesting, but going so deep yeah. into it that it is interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so movies like Wordplay, yep, uh, or the documentary, Helvetica, Helvetica yeah. a little bit later, but like Wordplay and Spellbound about yeah. uh, New York Times crossword puzzles. And then, oh, oh no! The spellbound was the spelling bee one. Spellbound right? is the spelling and the, bee. Yeah, and there was a, the, there was a comp- competitive Scrabble one. Yeah, but yeah, so that's for me. And Michael Moore is actually a very small part of that for mm. me. Uh, yeah. I saw Bowling for Columbine, and I have not seen another one. And but but you certainly did. You have an opinion of Michael Moore, even though you had not seen. I think everyone has an opinion of Michael Moore, even if they haven't seen much of his stuff. My opinion is more towards skepticism, as far as the efficacy of what he's doing is he really being positive like affecting change or or doing something worthwhile and even after watching roger me that's still that's still my question yeah and i think that has been what has kept me from seeing other documentaries Hmm. of his I, i gotta admit some sometimes when i watch political documentaries um and some of my favorites are alex gibney with like taxi to the dark side enron the the smartest guys in the yeah. room, inside job. Part of what I love about those documentaries is that they inform me on things that I already kind of had an opinion about. Like I knew my thoughts on Enron. I knew my thoughts on uh, the financial collapse and the war in Iraq. And his documentaries and documentaries like that give me like, here's why I think those things. They yeah. give me like those they really like solid the footnotes. Right. Yeah. Essentially. And I feel like if, a doc- if I'm going to watch a documentary, I want to be able to, 
credibly and effectively use the information from that in discussions with people or whatever. And to me, Michael Moore's information comes with an asterisk Mm -hmm. always. Yeah, that's interesting. So my relationship is with Michael Moore is very different. Now, this is almost neither here nor there. Have you seen Hoop Dreams? Yeah. Okay. But not till pretty late in the game as far as my documentary watching. Hoop Dreams is strangely underappreciated. It is. Because in 1994, there was even talk of it being up for Best Picture. Like the buzz in 94 was huge for it. And then it sort of died down almost because the buzz was too big in 94. I feel like... That is probably, for me, the best documentary I've ever seen. Hoop Dreams? Really? Yes. Okay. I, I, love, I love Steve James. I love his process. He takes a long time to yep. film his stuff. And like The Interrupters is awesome. Right. Yeah. yeah. I just love it. Well, and that's definitely different style than Michael Moore's. Well, it sure. is. But there is so much social commentary in there. But also a really deep character study of like five different people. And how he does it, I mean, it's like three hours, so it's not short, but how he's able to do all of that and not insert himself into it right. without like commentary, he just shows it. Right. It's just, it's unbelievably good. Yeah. Sorry. Again, that I just had to, I, I, for some reason I forgot I had seen Hoop Dreams in my <laughs> loved it as much as I do. Um, so when it comes to Michael Moore, though, for me, the first movie that I saw of his was was Fahrenheit 9-11, and it okay. was all because of the hype. Like, mm. I heard this was a movie I had to see, and I was a pretty conservative, evangelical, mm-hmm. like, full disclosure, voted for Bush that mm-hmm. prior election mm-hmm. college student. I was in college when it came out, and I went and saw it in the theater. And um, I was, like, the only one, though, of my friend group that actually took the time to go see it. Everyone else just basically demonized it without actually seeing it and just said, it's a hit job. It's so skewed. It's just propaganda. Um, you know, don't believe what you hear in that movie. And so I was just thoroughly entertained by it. I could not deny that it was a pretty fun movie to watch. And at the same time, I was like, but yeah, I mean, you know, if, if even half of this is true, that's pretty messed up. <laughs> yeah. You know? So it was. I really can point to that as sort of a beginning of my disillusionment with a lot of the politics that I was following at following at the time. Yeah. I still remember this. I was in the cafeteria and I was talking to two of my friends who had not seen it, but definitely had their minds made up about Michael Moore. Uh-huh. And I wasn't even trying to argue with them about it. I was like, yeah, you're probably right. It's probably, I need to look into it really. And this guy who I never saw again in school, but like, he just inserts himself into our conversation, sits down and goes, hey, did you guys see Fahrenheit 9-11? I, hear, I heard you guys were talking about it. And I was like, well, I saw it. These guys didn't. And, and they were like, no, we're not going to see it. We're not going to bother with that. And he's like, why not? And he really started pushing us on it. And they were like, well, because he just makes up facts and you know, just makes up his own story. It's totally one-sided. And he's like, well, can you point to me what's the part that was made up? And I was like, well, I saw it. And I'm like, hmm. <laughs> You never saw that guy again? No, I think I did see him like a couple times, but we never talked again. Like, and I saw him a couple, like he was a student there. I know he was, he wasn't like an angel. It wasn't like touched by an angel. He He just came He didn't like wink at you. But I just remember, I just remember this was a person who came from the opposite side of the aisle, decided to inject himself into our conversation. And all he did was a very Socratic. Yeah. Well, what, what was it about it that you thought was misleading? Mm -hmm. What was it about it you thought was wrong? Yeah. And then, they were, and then they would try to come up with stuff, and I saw the movie. So I was like, well, this part seemed a little weird. And he's just like, well, look it up. 
you know. And he go and at the end he's just he actually goes, I actually thought it was a really good movie. I actually thought that, uh, you know, and these are undergrad college students talking. He's like, I thought it was extremely even handed. (laughs) (laughs) So take that for what it is. Yeah. But it was the beginning of something for me. And the more I dug into, dug into Fahrenheit 9-11, I was like, yeah, he got some chronology off here and he did sort of like show some relationships that almost seem conspiratorial. Like, I don't think we've ever really kind of drawn those lines, but his main idea on the Iraq war is the common knowledge now. And then after that, I didn't really watch another thing until I watched Sicko. And to me, Sicko is probably his best work. I mean, I wasn't the most like up on these issues, and a lot of people were a lot further into the debates than I were. Right. But for me, it was a revelation. So my experience of Michael Moore, which I would hope is maybe what his intention is, is that it got me thinking, yeah. it asked the right questions, and I went and dug and into you had to it form more. your own opinion. Yeah. And I've since watched a couple other ones, and they've had sort of diminished returns. Actually, we can talk about this later. I just think his thing, the Michael Moore film, isn't as impactful and uh, relevant as mm. it used to be. Interesting. Okay, so I think that's a good entry point into Roger, uh, Roger and me. What is Michael Moore's thing? thing. What's his? What's what's he doing here? Yes, uh, Roger is and me it working. Roger and me is it really? He hasn't changed the template, I right? Don't think. So. First viewing, what do you letterbox rating? What are we saying here for you? I go four stars with it. Okay, um, I go the same. Interesting. So we are at odds once again. <laughs> um, well, all right. So, so do how, we need to define what he's doing? I think, uh, or how would you put it? What what is what does he do? What is his style? What is his kind of his mo? There's always a few factors in his movies. There's always him. Right. He injects himself into his movies. And Roger and me starts with about five to ten minutes of biography, yeah. autobiography. Mm-hmm. I did read an, uh, an article on Michael Moore's thing. Okay. And it was from a book called Michael Moore, Filmmaker, Newsbaker, Cultural Icon. And there's an article in there by Douglas Kellner, who's a critical theorist at UCLA. Okay. Just to get the citations out of the way here. He says that uh, Michael Moore deploys three types of documentary strategy. Quote, personal witnessing. So that's like inserting himself in there. Right. Exploratory and confrontational quest dramas. So that's in every movie. This His yeah. quest here is to find Roger Smith. And a in, lot of confrontation. In uh, Bowling for Columbine, it's finding Charlton Heston. Mm-hmm. And the third thing is agitprop political interventions. Okay. So that kind of brings in this Michael Moore's in here. He's on a quest. He kind of plays the doofus who doesn't know anything and just wants to get to the truth. Yeah. And then also that there's just a little bit of sort of like agitprop, just sort of like um, rabble rousing. Rabble rousing. Yeah. yeah. Is that, would, would you say that's kind of his thing? Or would yes. you add, would no, you add, I absolutely would you would. add something? I to absolutely that? would say that. Uh, I will add to that though. His viewpoint is pretty consistent. Like he is someone who. Sure. Always takes on class yeah. and privilege and even mixes in racism usually in there a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has been pretty consistent through yeah. all of his movies. His yeah. viewpoint really the powerful has powerful versus the powerless yes. is always yeah. kind of that uh, that angle. But uh, there is something refreshing to it that ends up kind of wearing on me in Roger and Me. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to talk in Michael Moore generalities anymore. Okay. In the movie. 
where at the beginning I'm sort of like, oh, it's interesting that he says we posed as tele- a television crew from Toledo. Like we lied to get into to this mm-hmm. factory to film. Yeah. Um, a little punk, like, little punk rock yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. But then as it goes on, I'm sort of like, well, would it have worked differently if you had gone more legitimate routes? <laughs> right. Maybe not because he was nobody. He was not Michael Moore. He had no money behind him. Right. He had no studio. He just was a guy with a camera. So maybe it wouldn't have. And he knew that or he had tried it. And he was like, well, if it's not going to work anyway, then I'm going to do it in this more, like you said, punk rock way, this mm-hmm. gorilla sort of style. It does sort of become a bit repetitious right. to have him be doing that shuffling around, sort of wearing the hat and a windbreaker. I have a television crew down here with Michael Moore. He's supposed to meet Roger Smith at noon. I have no information. How often does Mr. Smith come here for lunch or dinner? The last time I saw him here was for sportsman's night. Yeah, what's that? It's a wild game dinner. Yeah. You go out and shoot your own animal? And Pardon me? You go out and shoot your own the animals you shoot, you bring here and eat? Or? Well, some of the stuff is donated. Yeah. Yeah. The food's like a rattlesnake and um, let me think of some real exotic Ooh. foods. Alligator. Eat this stuff here? Roast beef. Yeah, that sounds better. <laughs> I'm sorry. I obviously had the wrong yacht club because Roger was nowhere to be found at this joint. At some point, it undermines his credibility because you're, you're like, what makes you think you could walk into a yacht club looking like that? Camera's rolling and you're going to find him. Right. Maybe that's not the point because he's like, of course I wasn't going to. Right. And I wanted to show you how inaccessible this guy is. I, I feel like part of it is him sort of hedging his bets on how he's going to keep the audience. Sure. That like, he's thinking, okay, I'm getting a little too heavy into just the archival footage and the, um, the, the heaviness of the situation here. Let's lighten it up a little with me clowning around at this country club, you know? Yeah. And is that more effective or does it undercut the, the heaviness of the other thing? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's only effective in the sense that his clowning around is supposed to illustrate the separation between the rich and the working class. And I will say that the the parts that hit hard for me were not reduced at all because of that clowning around. Yeah. There's that one eviction on Christmas Eve mm. with that little boy that they kind of keep showing. Yeah. Networked. That eviction, that Christmas eviction, is intercut with Michael yeah. Moore confronting Roger Smith and saying, let's go to Flint right now. A family right now on Christmas Eve is being evicted. And peep critics were like, but that can't be true because there's no way that filming, he was yeah, filming yeah. this and this at the same time with a one camera crew. And it's like, that's, you're missing the point. Like right. the point is still there. Whether he filmed it a few weeks prior, it doesn't really matter because yeah. the truth is still there. He's juxtaposing this corporate yeah. asshole right. reading from reading Dickens, from Dickens. Uh, and trying to put himself in the place of someone who really buys into the spirit of Christmas and generosity. And talking about missing the point, <laughs> yes, A Christmas Carol does deal with the the magic of Christmas. It's also largely dealing with a greedy, a greedy <laughs> person yeah. with lots of money completely ignoring the needs of people who work for him. Right. You couldn't write that. Right. <laughs> so I say, God bless Christmas. And God bless all of you. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Mr. Smith. 
came down from Flint where we filmed a family being evicted from their home uh, the day before Christmas Eve, a family that used to work in the factory. Would you be willing to come up with us to see what the situation is like in Flint? Well, I've so been that people... to Flint, and I'm, I'm sorry for those people, but I don't know anything about it, but you'd have to... Families being evicted from their homes on well, Christmas I'm, Eve. Well, I'm sure General Motors didn't evict them, so you'd have to go talk to the landlord. They used to work for General Motors, and well, now they, they don't work there anymore. Well, I'm sorry about that. Could you come up to Flint with I us? I cannot come to Flint. I'm sorry. That's where documentary is not journalism, and right. I think he makes a very large truth in that moment. Uh, yeah, I agree, and it was it was heartbreaking. One of the things that we've never really talked about on this podcast, but is definitely something I'd be curious to know about about you is I guess what what do you believe the function of documentary is or the uh where do you think objectivity falls into that yeah. like the documentaries we've discussed have been American Movie and Grey Gardens both movies that I think even if we found out areas where they maybe stretched the truth a little bit or played with some editing in certain ways they don't have the kind of consequences right. that a political documentary has. Yeah. And yet we kind of lump them into this genre of documentary altogether. Yeah. And we talk about it as one art form um, that does this thing or doesn't do this thing or should do this thing and shouldn't do this thing. And documentaries definitely come with a lot more strings attached about what you should and shouldn't do right. than I feel like movies do. There's some journalistic <laughs> ethics and integrity sure. to and, it. But and I, I don't and think documentaries are journalism Exactly. Either. If I'm going to be honest, I think that we should take them as first and foremost pieces of art and film and give the artist leeway to make the point that they want to make with the material that they have. Right. The idea of objectivity in itself in documentary film is kind of an illusion. Yeah, um, That is my sort of like academic um, approach to mm-hmm. documentary, mm-hmm. but my gut says, well, yeah, but what's the use of a political documentary if it plays loose with the facts, because yeah. like you There's said, no how useful is it? You, what do you do with the fact that everybody is subjective? Do you take it as leeway to say, well, I was I never set out to make anything objective. So what I did was to support my subjective point, which is where I kind of feel like Michael Moore is. He would say like, I never said this was objective. This was always from my point of view. That's why I'm in it. That's why I'm the one talking. I, I don't have like a authoritative narrator going, you know? Um, and I, I, I feel less comfortable with that. Or do you say, I am, a, I am subjective in that I have a point of view and I'm going to, using good research, using good citation and, and due diligence, present evidence in support of my point of view. And we all have a bias and we're all coming from that, but we also need to, in good faith, support where we're coming from or the conclusion we've reached in a way that holds water. Mm -hmm. Whether or not a documentary is exploring an idea, it could have different functions. So American movie, yeah, there are thematic things that come through, but we're also sort of being entertained by the story of these. those, Those men become characters that are living in this documentary. And so were there things that were maybe left out that would have contradicted that characterization possibly but the movie wasn't like really trying to do anything other than kind of show us the struggles that somebody who really believes in their need to create art goes through right mm-hmm. um so i guess i i kind of the other side would be making a murderer to me that like another movie about wisconsin another movie about people of the same sort of socioeconomical class the same 
Wisconsin accent, that sort of thing, but doing a very different thing Mm -hmm. with that character of Stephen Avery because they are also bringing in the criminal justice system and the the Manitowoc um, Sheriff's Department. They are probably held to a standard of not leaving out pertinent contradictions or not leaving out information that would undermine the characterization they have of Stephen Avery. It's taking on sort of a different political system. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, there's a level of precision that has to be in something like Making a Murder and even in Michael Moore documentaries. And um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that a lot of the characterization of Michael Moore as someone who plays fast and loose with the facts, it's not untrue. Mm-hmm. But it's also exaggerated. Yes. I think Michael Moore is just, he, it's still documentary, but he's just doing something different. His whole point is to be a starting point. His whole point is to raise the questions mm-hmm. for you to go and to dig more into this. Uh, because you could go down the line of his documentaries. He is usually talking about things that the mainstream media is neglecting. Mm-hmm. And it becomes more mainstream after sure. he talks about it. Uh, But you have to remember the year these movies come out. When Sicko came out, how many people were talking about universal health care? Not that many. When Fahrenheit 9-11 came out, how many people were talking about Bush as being an incompetent president? Not that many, actually. This was still the time of the Patriot Act coming out. People were still thinking of questioning the president as being unpatriotic. And then when Katrina happened, everyone started questioning his competency. Bowling for Columbine, you know, the gun conversation is still raging, but he was, this is 2002. This is before it was really getting to the point where we were actually pointing to the NRA as part of the problem. So all I'm saying is that um, when I have found Michael Moore critics and Michael Moore skeptics talking about how um, he dodges this fact or he he doesn't characterize this the right way, or he shouldn't have set up this person that way. Well, the whole point of him to me, and this is what he says all the time. He's like, you dig into it. Yeah. And the more you dig right. into it, it's not so much that you realize he was telling the truth because maybe he wasn't and he was making an entertaining documentary, but you do find out that the larger truth he was telling way more complicated was, than the conversation before it. Yes. Yeah. And that, and that in some ways he has been validated over sure. and over again in his movies you know, of course, someone on the right is not going to think that. Right. Disagree with me. That's fine. But I will say that it's pretty hard to debate that a lot of the stuff he brings up in his documentaries becomes what eventually is the mainstream conversation about that topic. Oh, and by the way, he did. He was also kind of like you. Um, he had no bones about saying Donald Trump will win this election uh, back in uh, July of 2016. And then the year before that, when it was still the Republican nominees, he basically said, Trump's going to win the nomination. Okay, that was a big tangent. Is, no, I get it. But, but I mean, the, but, I, would, I would even say that Capitalism, a love story coming out in 2009 during, yes. during the Obama administration. Right. People, when it was Which like, I didn't see that one, but, I, but yeah. Yeah, I didn't see that one either. But I remember at the time being like, okay, capitalism, you got to cool it, Michael Moore. And now, absolutely. That's the conversation. Right. And, that is the conversation. And, yeah. Uh, again, I haven't seen it. I probably should. But um, I was like, buddy, Obama's president. What are you still making movies for? Like, what's the issue? <laughs> uh, but that was a reduction of what he does and what he's thinking about uh, on my part. And in the spirit of like those other documentarians that really do just spend a lot of time with their subjects and do the sort of like work mm-hmm. of getting close to them and having them open themselves up, that 
deputy who does the evictions yeah. is a really fascinating character. And Michael Moore had to develop that trust with him to be able to follow him around to all these things. What's going to happen to this woman? In up to now, less than the new husband come up with the money. I can't imagine somebody getting married to someone as poor as you. It gets kind of rough. Put two poor people in the same house. You, I always tell women you can be poor by yourself. You don't need any help. And she just got some help being poor. Three days later, Fred put the woman and her kids out. So there is a level there of just even traditional documentary filmmaking that you don't see, by the way, in Dinesh D'Souza. <laughs> no. God, do we need to go into it? I don't think so. Okay. That guy only knows how to do reenactments because there's no there's way no he's going There's he's no got. footage. He's got no footage. He's got nothing. Yeah. I don't care how much you think both sides play with the facts or use their platform to do propaganda. At least Michael Moore gets the footage. Yeah, he doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't do reenactments. So, yeah, I think when Michael Moore wants to hit those emotional notes, he does mm-hmm. a really good job at it. He does it sometimes with shock value, like when he shows footage of a black man being shot by police. Yeah. There's actually three like in a row, I can't believe, things I wrote. One was, I can't believe how quickly the tourist initiative failed. Second one, I can't believe they showed the rabbit scene. And then I can't believe they showed the guy getting shot. And those happen like boom, 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 like right in a row. Yeah. Um, He doesn't shock you constantly, though. Like for someone who's seen as over the top uh, or hyperbolic, he really knows when to use things Mm -hmm. like that. What I feel like in Roger and me, he doesn't know how to use so well is the confrontational interviews Mm. or the interviews that he is kind of going for the low hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. Um, The Bob Eubanks stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Bob Eubanks seems like a real creep, but what is that adding to anything? Bob was right. He didn't use that word breasts. And I considered apologizing to him for implying that his show wasn't wholesome entertainment for the entire family. (laughs) You know why Jewish women don't get AIDS? Because they marry assholes. They don't screw them apart. me. I see what you're saying. I took that a little bit differently, though, in that it is part of this larger argument he's making about what happens when you have a community that's completely devastated and the powerful and the popular come into it. And not only do they not get it, they don't care to get it. it. And you get nothing but platitudes for these people. And I'm just going to basically make him look like the fool yeah. that he is. And he came to the Flint County Fair because he knew he could make money. Yeah. Like he could get paid to be there. Bouncing off of that idea of like, what's the point of that? You know, the Bob Eubanks thing. I would actually tie that directly to like the Gatsby party and like the other areas where I he's would sort of thematically. Like, thematically, yeah. yeah. There's an assumption in Michael Moore films mm-hmm. that I don't think everybody shares. It's actually from that same article I was just citing. Douglas uh, Kellner in this article says, privileged public, corporate, and political figures deserve satire and critique, and the public deserves to see their unguarded and revealing moments. Hmm. That's an assumption this critical theorist makes. I think that's an assumption Michael Moore makes. Sure. That's an assumption Sasha Baron Cohen makes, for sure. Yeah. I don't think that's an assumption shared by everybody. Right. And I think that's part of what people don't like about those types of things. I can totally see that. And I, I'm I'm more or less fine with that. My issue with it is if he knows 
that not everybody shares that assumption or if he's doing it anytime he can does it undermine things because then people can write him off as a troublemaker Sasha Baron Cohen a point arises out of what he does because a pattern emerges in the way that he he exposes the dark side of people or the whatever mm-hmm. And that pattern emerges from the consistency of what we're seeing from them, yeah. not from a point he's trying to make. But I, but I, I, I see the same pattern in Roger. Sure. There's a pattern of Pat Boone. There's a pattern of no, Eubanks. There's a pattern of the people at the Gatsby party. There's a pattern of that lobbyist that, you know, like, right. no, there's I, a pattern I, of Reagan coming in. I think that's why he tries to make mm-hmm. it sort of tied so closely to the layoffs, even though chronologically it's a little bit of a stretch. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a pattern of these people, and he even carries it into his latest documentary, Fahrenheit 11.9, mm-hmm. with Obama coming into Flint after the lead poisoning in the water. There's mm-hmm. a pattern of these people coming in from the outside and just basically saying, buck up, buddy, yeah. it's going to get better, yeah. you know? I, I No, I totally see that. The thing is that when that pattern doesn't emerge, and it's sort of like he's still carrying that through line of sort of satire or joking, and it isn't that type of person. I would think like the Miss Michigan, where yeah. as she's in the parade, he just yells, what do you think is happening? With, like <laughs> <Right>. Flint. Like <laughs> Miss Michigan is not at all privileged, powerful in that way. Right. And so to like have her sort of skewered in like a gotcha moment. Yeah. Yeah. That one fell flat. It was more revealing when he talked to her all the trailer, but that part of the parade. Right. But even that, it was sort of like, listen, man, I'm here to win a pageant. Like I, I I didn't come here for any of that. Like, what do you think a pageant is? And then he sort of says like, she got her wish three, three weeks later or whatever. And she wins it. And are we supposed to be like, gosh, she would, you know, like, (laughs) right. That didn't really work. I don't get that. And then at the same time too, I, I, I get a sense of like some mocking with the the lady who raises rabbits. Yeah. I butcher the babies when the babies reach four or five months old. Well, that's good. (laughs) See, if you butcher the older ones like these guys, then they're stewards. Mm-hmm. They're not friars. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people likes friars better yeah. than they do the stewards. Yeah, that makes sense. So I keep my own personal stock, and then when my babies get four or five months old and I have 15, 20 babies, you got to get rid of them some way. Yeah, that's true. Well, if that's... you don't sell them as pets, you got to get rid of them as meat. So like that impulse in him, mm-hmm. sure, you could say, and I think it's true, he does it to the rich and powerful. and that's. But then you could look at that scene and say, this guy is just sort of elitist in that way. He's sort of like somebody who thinks like, if you don't think like me, you're an idiot, you're a lunatic, you've got like all this stuff wrong with you. And I, I do see different things happening between the way he is with Bob Eubanks, the way he is with the lobbyists, versus the way he is with... Uh, you know, Miss Michigan and the, the rabbit lady. Like, I see that there are differences there, but I also can see how it would be easy to connect the dot of Michael Moore is kind of the asshole here. Yeah. You you see that pattern, and I agree with you that you talked about, the rich and the powerful just sort of dismissing. But I think that he opens himself up to another pattern that completely undermines what he's trying to say. So I'm with you on the gotcha moment he tries to get out of the pageant, Queen. Mm-hmm. And the rabbit woman i just think the movie would have been stronger if she wasn't in it yeah there's a shock value to seeing her dress a rabbit but honestly like that's how you dress a rabbit so like it's a shock value only to people who don't know how that works right and he shows her like hitting it over the head and i was watching that and i was like what's the point of this i actually get the point earlier on 
he's trying to connect the dots here of what low places people go to just to survive, basically. I think the dressing of the rabbit piece was just one of those where it's like, come on, man, know your audience. Yeah. You know, like these people are not going to read this as right. just someone dressing a rabbit. They're going right. to completely see like they're going to see it as animal cruelty and, then and what is wrong with this person. she wants to go to veterinary school, it's supposed to sort of be the punchline on her entire story arc. Yeah. I actually early in the documentary I was like uh my second note is it would be fascinating to see Michael Moore go back to Flint now. By the end of the movie I was like I would be too depressed to see a full movie about Flint now. Yeah, I mean, we didn't even talk about the movie the fact that this movie is you know, 30 years old now. And Flint was decimated by the end of this movie. Right. But also like we were wondering in our last episode, how well is this going to hold up? Is it just going to be kind of a time capsule thing, you know? And we're just going to kind of be like, well, yeah, man, that, that would have been really important for 1989, but it doesn't have a whole lot to say for right now. No, not at all. And if anything, what's most depressing is that not only is it still, entirely relevant it's also just the way that we've come to understand the way the world works like we've just internalized it when he talks about things like they're going to ship these jobs to mexico i think now we watch it and we're like well of course they are yeah they didn't already (laughs) they weren't already in mexico that's true um and that the the booming businesses are evictions and prisons yes the fact that he was even touching on mass incarceration in 1989, that says something. I mean, he, he flat out says they just basically took the people who were unemployed and employed them to take care of the growing prison population, which was growing because crime was rampant. Because, and because, most of the prisoner, a lot of the prisoners were their former fellow employees. Yeah. That was something I feel like maybe it was too early, too ahead of its time that I was like, I can't believe he's not making more of that. But can't you see, can't you see someone watching that in 1989 and saying, this is starting to sound like six degrees of separation, conspiratorial yeah, stuff. Alarmist. Like, alarmist. Like, there is know, no connection between GM and the American prison corporations and the, Amer- and the prison population. Right. right. Yeah. And this yeah, is what absolutely. I'm getting at where like, I feel like yeah. when he is seen as his most conspiratorial, Sometimes it is, but, but often it's he's not. He's hitting on something. I can't imagine in 1989, the Reagan-Bush years, raising questions about the integrity of corporate America. Mm. What a voice in the wilderness that must have been. Right. You always had Ralph Nader, I guess. You did. Who gets a shout-out in the movie? The Weakening of Unions, another thing. Yeah. Although not the Weakening of Unions through government intervention the weakening of unions through the, the bosses yeah getting too close to the company yeah it is a terrifyingly present <laughs> movie but there is something undeniable i think that's happened which is that he's just sort of lost his power his credibility his power like sort for of diminished. a couple of years you knew when michael moore like bowling for columbine fahrenheit 9-11 sicko it was like you knew when a michael moore movie yeah. came out yeah and Fahrenheit 11.9, maybe you kind of knew about it. Uh, Capitalism, a love story, you, I, I heard some things about. Um, Where to Invade Next, I didn't know came out. No, I, <laughs> and I watched it when it was streaming. That's actually a pretty good movie. The premise is pretty simple. Like, maybe some other countries have some things to teach us. And that even even that concept, other countries have things to offer America. 
controversial in it's this controversial. country. It's controversial to the point that in the Democratic primary in 2016, Bernie Sanders brought up something Denmark is doing, and Hillary Clinton's only response was not to engage with what the idea was. Right. She said, well, nothing against Denmark, but I think we're doing okay, basically. <laughs> like, we're not Denmark. We're not Denmark, yeah. And we're not doing anything Denmark does because yeah. we're America. So he gets labeled as someone who hates America. In fact, there's a documentary out there called Michael Moore Hates America. Right. You know, and so I'm not saying that the criticisms aren't justified to a degree, but when I actually hear the criticisms, I'm kind of like... Your criticism is that you think he hates America. Well, you think he hates America because he points out some flaws in it and he talks about other countries having some ideas. Come on, do better, you know? I feel like a lot of people don't actually challenge his actual ideas in the movie, you know? They might challenge certain things, like in Fahrenheit 9-11, they'll challenge, like, you know, you're making all these assumptions about the Bush family's associations with the Bin Laden family and certain money passing through. Okay, were the weapons of mass destruction there? And did we need to go into Iraq? Right. That was the point of the movie, right? right? That was the right. point. <laughs> and and like, so so what is the point of Roger and me? Um, that's a good question. The point to me of Roger and me and the lobbyist makes this very clear is that we have created, first of all, a mythology of the American dream yeah. that is not there anymore. That's the first point. And the second point is that we have deified the idea of the bottom line being the end-all, be-all goal of every American company at the sacrifice and at the detriment of most of our population. Yeah. I almost feel like the point of Michael Moore documentaries isn't a statement, but it's more of a question. Like, what is the question that he's raising? And I think one is, what is the responsibility of a corporation to the world? And if you say a corporation's only responsibility is to make money— then the the question that should follow is, why are we okay with that? Which has only gotten more pressing, not just economically, but when you talk about environmentally. Right. Yeah, not just the people currently living, but what is a responsibility to future generations? Another question that I feel like is posed by the movie or, or that it raises for me is, should we even allow a corporation to be so influential that an entire city's economy relies on it, Mm -hmm. let alone an entire nation's, which happened 20 years later when GM again said, you want to happen to America what happened to Flint? You better bail us out. Right. And Michael Moore was trying to, it seems like, say, look what happened to Flint. If we don't check this, and if we don't help Flint right now, we will not have a plan in place when things go wrong on a larger scale. And we didn't. And we don't. I'm doing a lot of physical humor that you guys can I stared off into the middle <laughs> distance when I said that for, for comedic effect. Well, I definitely will be watching at least Sicko and Fahrenheit 9-11. Yeah, and I... Okay, so I want to make it clear that I'm not a complete more apologist. No, I, I don't think... To me, it didn't come across that way. Okay, critiques of more, um, they're not wrong. And it is true that he's just lost his influence over the years, I think. Um, Roger and me and Michael Moore's thing mm-hmm. was very important and did its thing in the time, but he's got to come up with something new because yeah. we've seen how it can be abused. There's too close a fine line between just a one-sided documentary and full-on conspiratorial right. propaganda. Movies about 
how 9-11 was an inside job. Because of like YouTube culture and because everything's just so fractured now as far as content, I just don't know how much his thing is as effective anymore. So going back to your idea of like the movies that politically were documentaries that you really liked, and those I like those movies too. Um, One of the things is that Michael Moore almost seems like provocation is part of it. Yeah. And the other movies don't seek to provoke you. So do you think there's a value to provocation, I guess? Uh, yeah, I suppose there is, as long as you aren't trying to persuade. And that's what I, that's the question I have. The the Mm. question mark that still remains around Michael Moore for me. Can you be provocative and persuasive? Mm. Uh, If you, you can be, I mean, you can, you can be provocative and try to persuade, but I don't know if you'll be effective. Right. And the diff- Does it work? Right. Yeah. And I guess the way I would categorize the political documentaries that have meant a lot to me versus Michael Moore is investigative journalism versus op-ed piece. And op-ed pieces can raise a lot of good points. They can even convince people. They can make claims that are very biased, but they don't have to be fully grounded in fact the way investigative journalism does. Investigative journalism still can persuade by choosing the story, which right. is a which is a, a, a point choice. of view, yeah, and choosing a point of view on that point of view, you know, like we're going to tell this story from the mm-hmm. perspective yeah. of the people who are living in this area, whatever. Whereas an op-ed piece is here is my point of view, and there is evidence that led me to that conclusion, but the point is my point of view, not necessarily the evidence. Mm-hmm. So I would, yeah, categorize them differently, right, and demand different levels of accountability yeah honestly. i think that's a really good way to distinguish what these different documentaries are doing mm-hmm. um and provocation to me similar to an op-ed it works to rally up the people who already believe it but it also does have an effect on the people who genuinely are kind of neutral because they haven't looked into it it's not going to help the people who have already formed opinions on the opposite side it can it can i guess I'm it'll try, you know. what i'm trying to do now with op-eds is read points of view that I know I won't agree with fully, yeah. but still try to understand where it's coming from. Yeah. yeah. And not do what critics of Michael Moore do, which is how can I discredit this point of view because I already disagree with it, but say, what questions is this person raising that I should be thinking about? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm like 20% success rate <laughs> at that. Like, yeah, maybe. Uh-huh. Um, because I do like, well, that's not true, or you can't put it that way, or that's totally out of context. And it's like, well, the point is to raise the question for you. And if you can see op-eds as questions rather than statements, I think that that's probably the better way to look at mm-hmm. it. And the same is true of Michael Moore movies. All right. That felt conclusive I when, think I, when I, I said that. Well, we should just roll with it then. Right. I, uh, I'm i still going for. I'm not bumping yeah. it up at all. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go for here too. I'm going to make Michael Moore... Something I'm going to watch in the in the near future. I guess we're best buds on this. Sure, I think no so. Reason not to be. Yeah. All right. Well, best buds it is, and yeah. uh, maybe we should turn our attention to uh, October and our next uh, yeah. feature film that yeah. we'll be conversing about. This is, as is our tradition, the holiday spooktacular. Yeah. October's sixth, coming up. Sixth, sixth annual holiday, holiday spooktacular. And uh, so we've got quite. We're changing the, it up, though. Yeah. In what way? What do you mean? We're not doing a uh, a straight up horror. Movie. That's right. It's not a an incredibly spooky, spooktacular this year. No. 
but it is from the mind festive. of a spooky director. Yeah. I think it's I think it's got the tone. It's got mm-hmm. the festivity. It's got the theremin. It. It does have the theremin, and Try it's it. it's got in its plot the makings of spooky yeah. things, and certainly actors who were part of spooktaculars previously. Yeah, that's true. Well, not not our spooktacular. No, 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 no. Spooktacular. Other spooktaculars. Qualifying movies. Right. Yeah. So name So I don't movie. think we need to say. No, no. Of course. We'll see you guys next time. <laughs> Figure it out. I mean, you, you, you have it's obvious. It's so <laughs> obvious. Uh, so anyway, we're going back to, uh, what was that, 1994? Yeah, it's an anniversary, right? 25 years. 25 years yeah. for... Uh, for Tim Burton's Ed Wood. Yeah, this will be fun. We haven't done a Tim Burton, first of we all. We haven't. No, we have done a Tim Burton. We did Batman. That's right. I always just kind of, I don't forget that he did it. I right. just always forget that when I think That's of his Batman filmography. That's our Batman movie, not our Tim Burton movie. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So we've done Tim so Burton. So we have done Tim but Burton. But we haven't but... done From the Mind of Tim Burton. Right. And so uh, Ed Wood. Yeah, Johnny Depp. Yep. As the titular Ed Wood. Martin Landau. Minute, right. Yeah. Sarah Jessica Parker, right? She's right. in that. She is. Uh, I don't know. Bill Murray. A little Bill bit. Bill Murray's in that. Yep. Vincent D'Onofrio. Uh, okay. Patricia um, Arquette. Okay. Uh, Jeffrey Jones. He was. He's the principal in Ferris Bueller. He's an Amadeus. Ah, uh, sure. Howard the Duck. Oh, of course. Jeffrey Jones. Love that yeah. guy. Yeah. Still alive? Jeffrey yeah, Jones? Yeah, yeah. He's still alive. He's still kicking. Good for him. Born in 1946. Wow. In Buffalo. New York? Yep, that's the one. Wow. Favorite son of Buffalo. <laughs> Anyways, I'm really looking forward to seeing this Jeffrey Jones performance. So, yeah, spooktacular. A different kind of spooktacular this year. I guess we're yeah. going to let let the listeners off a little easy this yeah. year. They're not going to be quite on pins and needles as yeah. they normally are. This one's for everyone. It is. It's universal. I mean, tis the season. Tis the season. To just open it up, much like we open our front doors to children in costumes and give them candy. Yep. Course. We welcome you to our stoop. We have a sign that says "Take One," and that one is Buffalo's favorite son's starring picture, uh, Ed Wood, Jeffrey Jones's star-making performance as Chriswell. Anyways, I hope our listeners will join us. It'd be interesting to talk about what you think the last decent Tim Burton movie the was. Last decent Tim Burton movie. Wait, I mean, we you should get into it that? in the episode. Yeah, you let's save, save that? it. Let's save it. Actually, I'd love to hear that from the listeners. I think yeah. people will be all over the place. I, I feel like Tim Burton's probably the kind of director that people would be like, I know a lot of people don't like this, but Planet of the Apes. <laughs> They'll find something. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> like I, watch it again. Anyway, we would love to hear what you think is the best, the last best Tim Burton, the last good Tim Burton movie. Right. And uh, you can do that, of course, on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Can, can we still be friends podcast? That. That's right. You can do that on our website, canwestillbefriends.net. You can email us, feedback at canwestillbefriends. You can uh, always record a voice file and send that through the email, mm-hmm. feedback at canwestillbefriends.net. You can also call us and leave a voice, an old-fashioned voicemail message. Yeah, we still do that. 847-306-9532 is where That's you right. want to send that. And I don't think we talked about it. No, we haven't talked about it at all because we started it officially after, oh, after we recorded, recorded. That's right. Well, we've got, we've, got an, we've got cutting edge... Right. We've got an Instagram account now. We're on the gram. Right. Do they call it that? Uh, yes, the kids do. Okay, we're on the gram. We're on the gram. Not to be confused with Teddy Grams. No. Well, we are on... T- we are- if you check your Teddy Grams box, yeah. you got to look real close. We're definitely right. hip to that tip. Hooked on the gram. Hooked, right. Whether it's the Insta or the Teddy. Or the Teddy. <laughs> but not the gram cracker. 
it's it's a lot of legalese, but they they wanted automatic s'mores tie-ins without extra Royalties. percentage for us. Yeah, and we just it's not fair. It was a non-starter. Look, if we walked away. Listen to this: if you just want the graham cracker flavor, you're not eating a graham cracker. You're eating a Teddy Graham. That's right. The graham cracker packed with full graham cracker fra- flavor. You, those Teddy Grahams. Right. You you may use a graham cracker for like a pie crust. Sure. Or for a s'more. Sure. Maybe you give your kid a snack of a graham cracker, but sure. the people who understand what a podcast is, they ain't sitting there eating graham crackers or eating Teddy Grahams. Yeah. If and they want the graham cracker flavor. We knew that. Right. And we 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 put our eggs in that basket. So Teddy Grahams, and then also we put our eggs Instagram. in Instagram. Yeah. If you do want to talk to us and interact with us, it's Instagram. Can we still be friends podcast? Right. That's the... Uh, that's our... That's our... Not... That's our name. Handle? Instagram. It's easier with Teddy Grams because when you get your name on the box, like that's your Teddy. Right. Our Teddy there is Can We Still Be Friends Podcast <laughs> right. Hearts uh, Teddy Grams. <laughs> oh, I meant that we need to take a photo been doing it to of it. us recording. Oh, yeah. Here. Nothing nothing screams with it like telling everybody, <laughs> narrating the selfie you're taking. Here. Are we taking a picture of each other? Maybe, yeah. This is the Nate Cam and the Ryan Cam. This is going to be fun. Everybody's going to be like... This, is, this oh. is great. I already did it. Wait, what filter should I do? Are you a Juno? I'm a Nashville, man. Nashville? All the way at the end. Let's put this here, there. Hashtag Ryan Cam. <laughs> uh, I like that. Here we go. Boom. All right, so that was a live stream now. <laughs> yeah, technically, us I guess. using our gram. It's done, and you can follow us now. Can We Still Be Friends podcast? And check out the Ryan cam. I just good. Check and out I just, the Ryan cam. I just, I just did a hashtag Nate cam. All right. Put an extra little a little caption on oh. there for you, though. Maybe we'll do that every episode. <laughs> oh, this is going to be a great a great segment that yeah, our, our, I, our I, listeners are, are just clamoring. They're I fast forwarding yes, to it. I can't. I let's get I to imagine. that. Let's get to that, that awkward awesome. clunky. Posting of the cam. Posting of the, <laughs> posting of the Graham cam. The, the Nate cam update. But, you know, we know tis the season. You'll mm-hmm. be with your family. I yeah. hope you carve out a little bit of time oh. and listen to uh, our next episode. And uh, we, we really appreciate everybody who listens. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Yeah, I'm, great. You, you came up with the tagline. So this time it's carve out a little time for some Ed Wood. Yeah, there it is. We'll catch you next month. Yeah.